Welcome to I'm Fine, You, brought to you by Maybelline New York, where we are normalizing the conversation around anxiety, depression, and mental health. Now here's your host, Chrissy Rutherford. Hello, and welcome to I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline's Braid Together initiative is dedicated to breaking the stigma around anxiety and depression while addressing challenges and providing resources to those in need. Hi, I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and on this podcast, we're channeling this mission into real-life conversations to help normalize talking about our mental health and provide tangible resources and guidance to anyone who might be struggling or who knows someone that is. Today, I'm so happy to be joined by the author of the best-selling book, The Origins of You, Vienna Farron. Vienna is a marriage and family therapist who is also known for regularly sharing relationship insights and advice on her popular Instagram account, at MindfulMFT. She joins us today to talk all about how breaking family patterns can liberate the way that we live and love and how we can recognize and heal our own origin wounds. Welcome, Vienna. I'm so, I mean, I've been looking forward to this conversation for weeks now. Same. It's always so fun when you get to chat with someone you know. I know, exactly. (laughs) Luckily, we had the opportunity to meet a few months ago around your book launch, and your book is so fantastic. I feel like there's so much ground to cover in this conversation, so I'm just going to get right to it. And to start, I was just curious, what drew you to becoming a therapist? Yeah, unsurprisingly, my own life story, a lot of people will say that therapists become therapists, whether they know it or not, to resolve that which is unresolved in their own lives. And I didn't know it. I knew I had a story, but I had placed my story in this box that was like, yeah, that's a totally fine story, totally normal story. Nothing has affected me from that story. And I'm going to go and become a marriage and family therapist and learn what goes into creating and maintaining healthy relationships. It's kind of funny to say that now when I look back at it, where I'm like, right. oh yeah, everything was totally fine. My childhood was all good, but I'm going to go ahead and learn how to have healthy relationships because I didn't see that growing up. Right. But no issues here. <laughs> right. You're like, I don't have any issues, but I'm going to help everyone else that has issues. Exactly. Right. It's like the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Oof. But yeah, my parents went through a nine-year divorce process, which started when I was in first grade. And it was... You know, now when I look at it, I can see very clearly how tumultuous it was. It was heavily conflictual. There was a lot of psychological abuse, manipulation, gaslighting, paranoia, emotional flooding. It's a really heavy environment to be a part of. And I'm an only child. So I was this tiny little human in this system that was really crashing and burning around me. And I became the individual who decided that the adults were not well. They were not doing well. And so I was going to become the little human who was totally fine, totally unaffected, all good. And I felt like that was what my contribution to the system needed to be. Right? There was so much going on for them. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to add any more to their plates. And so I pretended. You know, I hid. I hid and I pretended and I acted for a really long time. And so convincingly right, that I even convinced myself 
that I had been unaffected for so long. And honestly, even when I was in grad school training to be a marriage and family therapist, for a long time, I still held on to the claim that their divorce and that process and what I saw had not affected me at all. Their relationship had really evolved and developed over time so much so that we could have holidays together and they could be in the same car coming to my lacrosse games or my orchestra concerts or whatever it might be. And I think those things were what I looked at and held so that I didn't have to feel. Right? It's like I clung to little details that made it okay for me to avoid needing to be vulnerable and needing to feel. And so obviously there's layers to it and there's more complexity to it, but that was really the origin story that got me into this work. And I'm curious, like, how did all of this hiding of your pain and your wounds, how did that show up in your romantic relationships, right? Because so much of our relationship with our parents actually turns around and affects how we interact in our adult relationships, whether romantic or platonic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it does. It shows up in all of our relationships, but we see it so acutely, I think, in our intimate relationships, which often are our romantic dynamics. And so, yeah, this needless little girl turned into a needless woman, which meant I was entirely boundaryless, right? I continued to show up as unaffected, unbothered. I really embodied the cool girl persona, which I thought meant that as long as I was down and fine for everything, people would stick around. You know, it was like to be boundaryless meant that you were easy, right? You were easy to get along with. You were easy to choose. You were easy to stay with, right? If you have no needs, if you don't set a boundary, if you're never upset by anything, if you're unbothered, right, then somebody is going to stick around and be with you. And it's going to create an environment that has some ease to it. And I remember when I was in my mid late 20s, I had in a relationship with someone. Their ex came back into the picture and he was trying to decide whether to go back to a relationship with her, stay in the relationship with me. And cue cool girl persona, cue being unaffected. And I immediately was like, I totally understand. This must be so hard for you. Like, this is so complicated. Take all the time you need. Right? It's like, I just went into this space where there was absolutely zero connection with self. I was so good at honoring the human complexity of others, but I could not bear to connect with myself. I could not bear to actually tune into how I was really feeling, what felt respectful for me. And that's because I had had decades under my belt of not doing it that way, right? Of like, actually just trying to caretake and manage the emotional experience of others without ever actually tuning into my own experience. And, you know, that moment in my life, I remember having a conversation with a friend and it all clicked in. I was like, oh my gosh, I am literally in the same role that I was in as a kiddo right now as a 29-year-old woman. And I could see it so clearly And it was just such an aha, you know, really life-changing moment for me. And I finally, for the first time in my life, said the words, I'm not okay, right? I'm affected by this. What's happening doesn't feel respectful. And I remember saying those things, like my palms were sweating and my stomach was in knots and my heart was racing. And I think, you know, for someone who has never had trouble saying I'm affected, this might 
sound like nothing. But for those of us who have really been the people pleasers and the peacekeepers and the emotional managers of others, right, to be able to say I'm affected, to be able to say I'm not good, to be able to say this bothers me was such a huge leap in my life. And that is what became the pivot. It's one of the things that I talk about in the book in the origin healing process that became part of the pivot in me starting to show up in relationships differently, being able to express what my needs were, being able to share when something felt like it was crossing a boundary Mm -hmm. when I was upset. And yeah, it was a really life-changing moment for me. I know because when you were in this relationship and the ex came into the picture, like at first, was there any part of your brain that was really registering like, I don't like this and it doesn't feel good? Or you were just like, okay, well, if that's what he wants. Mm-hmm. It's fine. No, all the alarms were going off, but I was so good at turning them down. Right. Yeah, all the alarms were like, OMG, okay. right? It was like <laughs> such a full body response, but I just found a way to ignore them, right? It's like, it's the same thing. It was the hiding. It's like, I'm experiencing this thing and I'm going to hide it from them. I'm going to hide it from myself. I'm going to reject it, ignore it, disconnect from it so that I can continue on in this space. Yeah. I love that you brought up the cool girl persona because I feel like that is very, very prevalent amongst young women and older women, even like, you know, I've definitely been guilty of it myself. And I think I expressed this to you the first time we met, but like for so long, I didn't realize that like I was allowed to have needs in a relationship. It's just not something that really ever occurred to me. And I think a lot of girls get into situations where they feel like, yeah, if you play small and if you don't cause too much drama, if you don't need too much from them, then you'll get the relationship that you want. And I think time and time again, you actually see that that backfires on you in every way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so many people, right? I talk about the worthiness wound, which is such a big wound for so many of us. In fact, when I was writing the book, I was like, oh my gosh, I think every single one of us brushes up against a worthiness wound at some point. But I think to what you're saying, Chrissy, is so many of us have the experience that we need to be fill in the blank, perfect, small, quiet. It's like all of those things. We need to be those things in order to get what it is that we're craving. So whether that's attachment from a parent, whether that's presence, whether that's joy, whether that's peace at home, right? There's a condition of if you want a particular outcome, this is who you need to be. And so, so much of what happens is that we disconnect from capital S self and we move away from authenticity into who we believe we need to be in order to get that outcome. So there's a lot of adaptation that happens. And I think when we're talking about the cool girl or whatever, right? It's like, okay, in what ways did I trade my authenticity in order to get the attachment, the connectivity, the presence, the love, the validation, the affirmation, fill in the blank. And I think so many of us learned that growing up in our family systems that we needed to shift a part of who we are in order to get the desired outcome that we crave. Absolutely. And I'm curious, like once you finally came to really realize what was going on for you and the suppression of your feelings? Like, how did you then move 
through it because I think even for me, even once I identified like, oh yeah, I should be allowed to state my needs in a relationship, I was still kind of fumbling through it because it felt very unnatural for me to communicate. So yeah, I'm just curious, like kind of what were the steps that you decided to take? Was it just like that you had to figure out what your boundaries were and then like finally set them? But then were you sometimes still giving in? Yeah. I mean, I think so many people can relate to the idea of knowing better, right? How many people yes. sit here and they're like, ah, like I know what to do, right? Our yeah. thinking brains can see things. We can connect dots. We're so aware of the thing. We can give great advice to our friends, but we can't integrate it for ourselves. Yep. We do really know better, quote unquote, but the actual integration of that is where we struggle. And that's where this work comes into play, right? Because we can know everything that we need to know about our stories or about how we're showing up in relationships or the way that we contribute to conflict or why our boundaries break down. But if we keep entertaining these patterns over and over again, when we do know better, it's letting us know that there is something from our past that needs more attention. I've said many times now that patterns are pain's way of trying to grab at our attention. Right? It's like, yeah, our patterns, right? The unwanted patterns that we have in our lives are our pain's way at tugging at our shirts. They're like, tap, tap, tap. Please turn around. I'm trying to find clever ways to grab at your attention so that we can do this differently. Wow. And knowing is not enough, right? There is a real need for our experiential part of this. And that's it is there's irresolution. You know, obviously we have a whole history before this moment in time. I spend a lot of time looking at our family of origin. I recognize that not everything shows up there. Sometimes it happens in our early 20s, our late teen years, but this is the place that I like to look. I really like to look at our family of origin, the family systems that we grew up in, and really look at what is unresolved there. When we are little humans in the world, and then maybe a slightly bigger humans in the world, we don't know how to feel through things properly. So what we do is we survive, yep. right? We survive our way through. We white knuckle our way through. We get to the other side in whatever form and fashion and we do it. Yeah. And so we're like, okay, here I am. And that's behind me, except it's not, <laughs> except that patterns will tell you that the unresolved pain from your past still needs tending to. And that's what the origins of you is all about. It's about understanding the origin stories, right? The first, right? The first time something significant happens in your life that changes the trajectory, that makes you question your worth or makes you question your belonging or makes you question how important you are. If you are a priority to the important people in your life, if you can trust people, if you are safe in the world, right? It is the moments in our lives that ask us to question those things. And again, we find a way through, which is very convincing because a lot of times we find a very, like sort of the illusion to the outside world that we have found a great way forward, actually. One of my friends and colleagues, Alexandra Solomon, says our pain and our gifts are next door neighbors, right? And it's such an important 
important message because I think sometimes we confuse like, but I'm successful or my life looks this way, but like I would not be so good at managing details or, you know, I see everything so clearly because I had to be hypervigilant growing up because there was so much unsafety around me, right? It's like our gift absolutely can come from this story, but sometimes we wind up clinging to the gift, right? To the edge that we think that we have acquired through our pain. And that becomes a reason not to look at our wounding and our pain in the first place. And so, you know, when you ask me, how do we do it differently? For me, it's about acknowledging the origin wound in the first place. But then we really need to do a practice of witnessing that pain and grieving. You know, grief moves us. Knowing doesn't move us the same way. Right. Grief moves us. Grief lets pain release its grip on us better than knowing does, right? Our thinking brain cannot do the work that our feeling body can do. We can know better, but we can't implement it because pain's going to say, you don't get to just leave me and abandon me and move on with life without tending to me. And so we have to find a way to tend to the pain, the origin pain, in a way that doesn't get us lost, in a way that doesn't keep us stuck in the past forever, right? but in a way that actually honors the story, you know, that honors the experience that we went through. Absolutely. And I really love in your book that you frame it as wounds because we are essentially talking about trauma. But I think a lot of times trauma kind of trips people up because they think it sounds really dramatic. And I think even for myself, when I was, you know, I've been in therapy since I was a preteen. And I remember when I started to like explore my own traumas, uh, at first I was like, I don't have trauma. Like it's not that serious. But there's, of course, in the psychology world, there's big T trauma and little T trauma. So that's why I really like that you frame it as a wound because I think that is an easier concept for people to really grasp. Yeah, exactly. And it, it was a part of why I use that word. I think to your point, trauma, the word can trip a lot of people up. Or they're like, I actually don't have trauma. And so this isn't for me. And that right. is not it, right? It's so important to understand that sometimes the things that feel like a throwaway. So for example, in one story, very small story in the book, I talk about a client of mine who, when he was in fifth grade, the girl that he liked, the girl that he had a crush on, said that she thought that he would be cute, but only if he was taller. And this, okay, throwaway comment right. from so long ago is actually a comment that has stayed with him, mm -hmm. right? And that it has set the trajectory in the way that he approaches and relates to romantic relationships and his belief around who will choose him and love him and accept him and why he has to become friends with every woman he dates before they can become romantic because he doesn't believe that he's enough without the hype piece, right? And so I share that because I think if you believe that you don't have this big bad stuff, right, then we dismiss ourselves from this work. And the reality of it is, is that we all have wounds, right? We all have some type of pain. There is something that has happened in our very imperfect stories that needs tending to. And so when we can call people into that work, 
in a way that doesn't seem like, okay, well, my story is so way less worse than the next person over what I call wound comparison. (laughs) It's like, that is the invitation to say, hey, actually, right, there's a part of my story that needs to be honored here. I don't need to compare it to anybody else's story. I just need to be in my own lane. I just need to honor my experience. And I just need to tend to the wound that is here. So yeah, I hope that that comes through because I don't want people dismissing themselves from this work. And I think when you focus too heavily on trauma, people can check themselves out of that very easily. Yeah. So now let's dive into the wounds that you have listed. You identify the five most common origin wounds that people experience as they're growing. And beginning with the worthiness wound, tell us a little bit about the nature or characteristics of this type of wound and the impact that it can have throughout life. Oof. Yeah, the worthiness wound is one of those that I think really all of us yeah. do touch at some point in our lives. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so if you're listening to this right now, just see, am I a perfectionist? Am I a people pleaser? Am I a performer? Am I the comic relief? Anything where we are shifting a part of ourselves right, to get the outcome that we're looking for. And this is what I was talking about before, right? is that there's a condition. Oftentimes, a worthiness wound will show up when we are learning that the love, the affection, the attention, the validation, the attachment is conditional based on our performance. So if you score the hat trick, then dad is happy with you. If you bring home all A's, then there's peace at home. If you are funny, then parent stops hurting your sister, right? If, if, if. Right? So there's all of these kind of contingencies that, okay, as long as you are performing, being perfect, whatever that means based on your family, as long as you are doing X, you're going to get the thing that you want. Right. So you're learning that your value, that your worth, that your importance in that way is based on these conditions. You can also have a worthiness wound in sort of these very painful experiences where you actually have a parent, an adult in your life who is explicitly telling you that you are unworthy, right? So these statements of harm. And I think for some folks who did grow up in environments where someone said, you're not worthy, right? And maybe it wasn't exactly that language, but something along those lines that had you question your value to the very important people in your life. And, you know, I think that that comes along with us today. If you were a perfectionist growing up, you know, it's likely that you're a perfectionist today. If you were a people pleaser growing up, right, it's likely that you're a people pleaser today. There's a lot of repetition that can happen. One of the other things that I talk about in the book, though, is opposition. So sometimes we have a role in our childhood, in our family system, and then we're so fed up with that role. We're so angry with it or disgusted by it that we swing the pendulum 180 degrees and then we really reject that role and show up differently. It doesn't change our relationship with the wound, right? But it's like it's still us showing up quite differently than we had before. So yeah, the worthiness wound, gosh, right? It like it just puts into question our value, you know, our meaning to others. And I think so many people will resonate with the worthiness one. It's possible for people to also have like multiple (laughs) wounds, correct? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I've had so many people write me be like, 
is it possible to have all five truly? <laughs> and right. yes, absolutely. The two that I identify with most are worthiness and uh, with safety. And, you know, it's sneaky. It really is like my dad, when I was growing up, and this is where the conditional peace comes in, was so happy to be helpful and supportive and so present with me as long as I was the quote unquote good girl, you know, as long as I was easygoing and, you know, presenting in the way that he wanted me to present, he would help out so much. But the moment that I was challenging, the moment that I was difficult, the moment I was, you know, acting like, you know, a typical teenager, right, was the moment that disconnect would happen. And he did that by giving me the silent treatment for, you know, days, sometimes weeks on end. And so his love, the connection, his presence, his support, his help was shut down as an act of punishment. And I share that because I think it's not always like, ooh, get the straight A's and then everything will be fine. It was, for me, it was, oh, you need to show up in a very particular way in order to maintain that presence and that support and that help or otherwise you would be punished through the silent treatment that my connection to this person was no longer. And, you know, that was a really challenging thing. And especially for, you can imagine that on top of the little girl who was flying under the radar, pretending like everything was fine. It's like, oh, no, really, unless you are presenting in a very particular way and being the good girl, you're not actually going to get what you need and what you want out of these relationships. Yeah, that's so difficult. And, you know, obviously family keeps coming up a lot. And for many people, the word family can conjure up feelings of belonging. But for some, it can also have the opposite meaning. What can you tell us about the belonging wound and how that manifests? Yeah, yeah, I know. I remember in the book, I'm like, you know, a home is where the heart is, is the saying that we hear sometimes. And I actually say, you know, but for some people, home is where the abuse is. Home is where the pain is, right? Home is not necessarily the place where we feel a sense of belonging and safety and connection and space and room to be who we are. I think a lot of times when it comes to family and belonging, I don't know if you grew up with this message. Sometimes it's explicit and sometimes it's a little bit more implied, but this idea of like, this is how we do it in our family. Mm. This is who we are, right? right? This is how we believe, right? This is what we think. And if you don't do the way that we do, then you're on the outside, right? And some of that is really beautiful, amazing, cool stuff. Our traditions, the things that feel like, oh, yeah, this is the way that we do a holiday. This is the way that we cook this meal, right? There's really beautiful parts to it, but then there's really challenging and hard parts, right? The things that are exclusionary, right? The things that say, unless you are like us, unless you love the way that we do, or unless you believe the way that we do, then we are going to disconnect from you. Then we are going to reject you. Then we are never going to be able to understand you. Dr. Gawamate talks about how 
the two, you know, fundamental needs for all humans are authenticity and attachment. But when attachment is threatened, every child is going to trade authenticity for it because it's survival, right? And so this is where this loss of self, right, this loss of authenticity comes in because we want to belong, except when we're talking about it this way, it's just about fitting in, right? Belonging is a true authenticity with self, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's not being shaken by those around us who don't understand it or who have to be at odds with it or who try to control it. Right, belong to yeah. self. Yeah. Right? But we are programmed to belong to other. How do I get you to love me? And there's a little bit of overlap here with the worthiness, right? Because it's what do I need to do yeah. to get you to let me be in with you? And I think that this is something that actually shows up in friendship so much, right? It's like, who do I need to be to be a part of the clique, right? Who do I need to be in order to fit in and be liked by you? And so it is a tricky time in life. But when we have a family that is encouraging the trait of authenticity, oh gosh, is it so easy to lose it? When we have a family that is supportive of the uniqueness and the differences and you kind of finding yourself, then belonging, I think, really becomes established. But yeah, this trait of authenticity for attachment is huge when it comes to the belonging wound. And fitting in is really where it starts. And I think at the beginning, as kiddos, we will always take the path of adaptation first. Yeah. Okay. I will trade it because my survival is being accepted by you. Uh, at a point later on, so I often say like the rebel might identify with the belonging wound as a teenager where you're like, screw it. I'm not doing anything that you want me to. I'm not going to present. I'm not going to dress or have my hair or I'm not going to hide it in this way. You know, I'm going to just do whatever. I want to do and screw you. And I'm going to take, again, that path of opposition, which is the 180 in the opposite direction, but isn't integration. And obviously, earlier we talked about how, you know, the origin wound doesn't always need to come from a place of abuse or negligence, bad intent. Sometimes parents are really trying to do their best and wounds still occur, which can be the case for the prioritization wound. That's definitely another one I identify with. I had immigrant parents who had to work a lot to give me and my brothers everything that we had. So tell us a little bit about this type of wound and the unintentional way it can occur. Yeah, I'm so glad that you're saying that because I think you're right. Most people think about this type of stuff and we tend to think about the abuse and the negligence and, you know, the parents not doing their best and all of that. And the reality of it is, is that a lot of folks are absolutely doing everything in their power in order to provide. And yet we can still have a takeaway as a child. And what tends to happen again is we then turn down our pain because we have this explanation that our parents were doing the absolute best they could. They were immigrant parents. And so there's a story and I need to have context and I need to actually have a lot of respect and admiration and gratitude for how much they sacrificed for me, right? And so that storyline is so huge. It's so challenging. It really is. And I think that was really hard to reconcile as I was going through my therapy journey because I'm like, my parents love me 
so much. You know, I had such a great childhood. They tried to give me everything that I ever wanted. But at the same time, as I got older, I could see the ways in which they weren't always able to show up for me in the ways that I needed. Like quality time is something that is really important to me if we want to talk about love languages. And that was definitely something that was at times lacking for me. So I think, yeah, it's especially when you are a child of immigrant parents, I think that can be really difficult to reconcile with because you're like, well, my childhood wasn't really bad. So You know, I don't really have anything to complain about, but there's still an impact that was made that feels negative. Yeah, that's well said. And yeah, I mean, I think that your story probably resonates with so many people who are able to say it wasn't this awful, terrible thing. And also, I'm supposed to have gratitude and appreciation and really acknowledge and recognize the sacrifices that were made. And that storyline, that can be true, right? We can have gratitude and appreciation and acknowledge the sacrifices that are there. And we can also have our own experience that doesn't just get eradicated because of that narrative. And that's what happens so often for folks is that we disconnect from, we reject our own experience to say, well, they did the best that they could, or they were so much better than their parents were to them. Oh, that's right. one of my favorite ones, oh, right? Yes, it's like, for sure. well, they've, <laughs> they've grown. I mean, they're far more advanced. And it's like, yes, right, that can be true. And also, can we not disconnect from your story. So there's this one client that I talk about in the book, Andre, who has a single mama who is doing everything she can, truly, working multiple jobs, doubles every day, except on Sundays. They go to church together in the morning, they have brunch afterwards, and then she goes to her afternoon, evening shift. And similarly, Andre was so protective of mom, so grateful, held her in high regard, and really loved his mom so much. It took a lot of work to get to the point where he could say that he wanted to feel prioritized through time spent with her, period. And it's hard because he could really rationalize that her working these doubles was quite literally her way of trying to prioritize him, right? Like yeah. Her whole life was dedicated to making sure that he was provided for and that he had the opportunities, right? And all of those things. And that was true. Mm-hmm. And what was also true was that he didn't get a lot of time with her, which is very similar to the story that you were sharing before, right? That that quality time was so important. And so even though a part of the brain can say, yes, of course, I see what's happening. This all makes sense. We can still crave and desire more time, right? We want to feel prioritized through quality time spent, not just through somebody working hard and being able to provide financially or give us opportunities. And so I think that the space for the both and is so important when we're doing this work because when we overemphasize the gratitude and the appreciation and the respect and the love, all of that, and we underemphasize the impact, you said this word before, it's perfect here, right? the impact of it on us, then we stay disconnected from the healing that is there. Yeah. And so we have to find this really delicate way. The whole point of origin healing work is not to throw our parents under the bus. It's not to make 
them the villain. It's not to hate them. It's not to spout shame in their direction. It's about calling the thing the thing. It's about being able to honor our experience and tend to what was there. And so, yes, it doesn't always have to look awful, right? Sometimes it can be the best. It could be better than what their parents gave them and so forth, but it still needs to be acknowledged and recognized. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a journey to work through it because I also I feel like you do go through that period where like you resent your parents for working so hard or, you know, you're upset with them for the things that happened in the past. But I feel like, you know, as I've gone through my own journey. It's really just being able to hold compassion for like both them and myself. Because again, at the end of the day, I do know they did the best that they could with what they had. But also, you know, there was this younger part of me that still felt hurt by the like lack of attention and, you know, yeah, and finding the ways that I can still give that back to myself. Yeah, I think if we can get to the place that you just described, that feels very mature. And to remember at the end of the book, I mentioned an exercise that Michael Kerr offers us, which is to think of your mother as your grandmother's daughter and right. see what changes, you know, to see how the perspective shifts. And, you know, only if that's available to you. Some people are like, right. oh, no, I don't want to think about it that way. <laughs> you know, that that's too confronting. Right. Right? I'm angry. I'm pissed. I, you know, I, 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 that can't be the excuse. But everyone was tiny humans at some point. And everybody went through their own origin stories at some point. And everybody has a complex, rich history. And it really is complicated. Context is helpful, but it's not an excuse. Right. Context cannot be the excuse. And so we're balancing that as we work through this book, because, yes, to be able to see them and hold compassion and grace for their limitations, for where their capacity was met. Right. That's very important. But to have that be something that is held separate from honoring our experience is vital. Right? We must create space for us to connect with ourselves. When we're constantly in the space of connecting with other, well, here's how hard their lives were. Here's what they went through. Look at how much they sacrificed, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Beautiful that you can access that. But when you overdo that, you are prioritizing connection to other way over connection to self. And you can't heal that way. You can't heal that way. So you don't have to hate anybody else. You don't have to throw them under the bus. You don't have to do any of that, but you do need to connect with self. Absolutely. So now moving on to the trust wound, because obviously losing trust in a person is always difficult, but as a child, there's long-term consequences. And how can breaches of trust or betrayal within the family system impact life in adulthood? Big, 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 big. We know that like once trust is lost, it is one of the hardest, hardest things to regain. And the way that the breach and the rupture of trust can show up in a family system, you know, some of the obvious ones that I think will come to mind for most people, right, are big lies, affairs, and fidelities. But then we've got like the family secrets, yeah. right? Like the things where you start to realize, ooh, wait a second, we are withholding something. Right? There's a family secret here. What does this teach me about my relationship to trust? Sometimes it's you know, I've met people who have stories where a parent took out credit cards in their name, these ruptures in trust, a parent who gambles away, you know, a child's education fund. And then we also have the adults who might make sweeping generalizations about 
individuals like never trust a man, for example. And so there might not even be an actual thing that was experienced by the child. But when you hear a message like that repeated right. over and over again, right, like the impact that it has on you is huge, right? Like, why is this parent telling me to never trust anyone? Or another parent who might say something like, you know, don't let people get too close to you, or people are only going to want to be close to you because of your money. Or, you know, it's like those types of messages that people might hear that somebody else is always wanting something from you. So don't let people get too close. Right. And that can take shape and form in so many different ways. But I want people to explore their own experiences to see, right, like, was there an event that ruptured trust? Okay. So again, we've got the big ones that might stand out, but then also like, a parent who repeatedly promises you something and never follows through. Mm-hmm. You know, like sometimes it's in the nooks and crannies of our lives, right? Where we learn, okay, the person I'm supposed to trust doesn't actually come through, doesn't follow through on their word. And so I cannot trust them. So the restoration of trust is hard because when that is imprinted into our early years, we do go through life questioning. And that's why sometimes safety and trust similar, right? It's like the hypervigilance. What do I need to check? What do I need to see with my own two eyes? Don't let people get too close because they're going to take advantage of you or you're just going to get hurt or, 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 right? And so the wall goes up, right? And we keep people at arm's distance, right? And so as an adult, right, to think, is there some hypervigilance? Do I need to see things with my own two eyes? Do I not let people get too close to me? Do I have to check somebody's emails or text messages or DMs in order to trust what is happening? Am I waiting for the other shoe to drop always? It's very consistent with the first story other than my own that I share in the book, which is of a woman who is with a man, Clyde, who she says is wonderful and there's no reason for her not to trust him, but she believes that the other shoe is going to drop and she doesn't know why. And at first, she doesn't want to explore her family of origin at all. Of course. But eventually, we get to it and we realize that she had held a family secret, right? She's like, oh, I don't want to go there. Why do we always do this? But we realize that she has held a family secret, which is that she stumbled upon emails of her father with a woman that wasn't her mother that he walked in on her reading those emails and sort of this big secret that she never spoke out loud until our sessions together that really imprinted this idea that even a quote unquote perfect story, you know, has its flaws to it, right? That there is something that's going to be hidden in the same way that it was with her father, who she had idealized and held on a pedestal her entire life, who she couldn't believe that this was actually what was going on. And she had held that inside of her and believed that to be true, not like detail for detail, but just expected that the other shoe would drop at some point in all of her relationships. And so she would exit all of them prematurely before anything would happen and was wondering why, right? Do I keep doing this, engaging in this pattern? So yeah, the trust wound, it's a tricky one. I love, there's this quote from Ernest Hemingway that says, the best way to trust someone is by trusting them. (laughs) It's like, it's so hard for people, right? But this idea that there's no other way. And I think what's important about that quote is that it's about discernment. 
It doesn't mean eyes closed, yeah. right? It means eyes wide open. Yeah. It means looking around step by step, beat by beat, because if you will not trust someone, you can't heal the wound. Yeah. Right? And so there's this work that we have to go through of going back into our origin stories around trust in order to restore a sense of trust with certain people not just across the board, but with certain people in our lives so that we can allow for that closeness and intimacy to happen. Yeah. Also, I just have to say, I'm always so fascinated by people who think that the past doesn't matter or go to therapy and are like, I don't want to talk about the past, though. Obviously, I get it because it can be very, very difficult, but it's like it really holds the keys to what is, you know, going on currently and for your future. Yeah, it really does. And I get it. People are scared. You're going to open up Pandora's box and what are we going to see? And, you know, we don't want to change the relationship that we've worked so hard to have with our family. You know, some people are really scared about that shifting. If I come in contact with something that I maybe didn't see before, is that going to change how I relate to you now? Or maybe we've had someone in our family who is deceased and it's really scary to think about going back and exploring that and they're not here for us to really reconcile and repair with. The list is endless and it takes a lot of courage and bravery to lean into this but it's important work. It's really necessary work if we want to break the unwanted patterns in our lives today, right? If we want to live and love in the way that we really wish for and desire, this work, this origin work is so, so, so important. I love that. And then let's round out the fifth origin wound, which is the safety wound. How do you characterize these types of wounds and how do they affect people as they grow older? Lots of tenderness around this safety wound. You know, to have done this wound justice, I really needed to speak to abuse, which is a hard thing to hold and, you know, take really proper care of in a book. Because when we are talking about the absence of safety, we are often talking about the presence of abuse. So we talk about abuse in this chapter. We talk about negligence. We talk about recklessness. But overall, right, this idea that your physical, emotional, mental, sexual, overall health and wellness was not cared for, protected, like attuned to, safeguarded by the adults in your life, right? Like that these people needed to be the ones that were seeing you and caring for you in all of those different pillars and that there wasn't enough or really any care or concern or respect or protection around those things. And so, yeah, similar, as I said before about trust, is that it often creates a hypervigilance in folks, right? We have to look out for ourselves because the adults are not looking out for us. Yeah, I have to watch my surroundings to make sure that I can feel safe physically, emotionally, mentally, sexually, psychologically, and so forth, right? And so this overemphasis on protection. And what happens is a lot of times, We have to turn the dial up on protection when we have a safety wound, which means that our capacity for connection gets affected, right? Because if protection is really up, 
connection has to go down, right? If the hypervigilance has to be up, if the wall has to be up, if we have to be looking out for ourselves, right, then we cannot actually, you know, connect authentically with other people. Sometimes, again, that pendulum swing is that we drop the walls way down low, that the way that we create safety is by attaching as quickly to someone as possible, right? The way to create protection is by getting into a relationship as quickly as possible so that that is the way that I am safeguarded. So it can look a lot of different ways. I don't want people to get pigeonholed with the way that it might show up, but we'll often see that wall, we'll often see that hypervigilance, but that there is some type of an attempt at keeping the self-protected over authentic connection to other. Got it. And you touched upon this briefly earlier, but can you expand on the wound comparison, what exactly is it? How does it manifest? And how does it distract from healing work? Oh, yeah. We're so good at distraction. You know, that's what we do. We find ways to distract ourselves from actually connecting with self. And wound comparison is one of those things that I think we're so good at. I was so good at it. And it's the idea that other people have a story that is worse than yours. And because they have a story that is worse than yours, you basically don't need to tend to your own. Like how silly for you to quote unquote complain when somebody else's story is so much more horrific than yours. How foolish you'd be so embarrassed. Right? And these are all the things that we say so that we disconnect from the story. We are all on a spectrum. Of course, objectively, we can look at some people's stories and recognize that the atrocities that they have gone through are beyond, truly. We know that. And that your story may not have those same atrocities to it. But if you are comparing that, what you are doing is that you are making zero place for you to connect with what your story is. Our pain is not in competition. Our wounds are not in competition, right? Our trauma is not in competition. Stay in your lane. We can honor, we can respect, we can see the pain that other people have gone through without that needing to minimize or dismiss and have us disconnect from our own wound comparison. All it does is keep us from our healing. Absolutely. That's all it does. Yeah. Is keep us from what it is that we actually need to do. And what are some of the other things that commonly hold people back from doing their origin healing work? I mean, I guess fear is really the biggest one, right? Yeah. Fear is huge. It's like, what am I going to find? That that can feel overwhelming to so many people. This idea that they're going to get stuck in the past and they're like, I just want to be able to move forward. I just want to get on with my life. I just want to be focused on what's ahead. And I get that. And you know, it's like, we need to, we've said this now in a couple of different ways throughout our conversation, is this idea that you think you can just move on with life and you know heal without having to tend to the origin stuff that hasn't been properly resolved. You know, that's the illusion is that our pain that wants resolution is going to keep pulling at us. And so, yeah, this fear, what am I going to find? Are my relationships going to change for the worse? Right. So this idea that I'm going to go look and then it's going to make me not like a parent or have anger towards someone. And I just don't want to deal with that. I'd rather just keep 
it as it is. Mm -hmm. I think the idea that we will be ungrateful is a big one too, that if we go and look and feel and experience and honor what is there, that we will then operate in the world as an ungrateful child to our parents or the adults in our lives for everything that they sacrificed or gave us and did. And so we're, again, it's this like prioritization of other that often gets in the way right? It's like, we're still caretaking. How will they feel? What will happen to this relationship? Will I be this ungrateful person? Can't I just move on? Right. And it's always this disconnection from self. And what this work is asking us to do is to connect to self in order to heal. For someone who is interested in starting this work, I mean, obviously it is a journey with sometimes like no real destination, but where is a good place to start? What questions should one be asking themselves? Well, one of my favorite questions, and this was the question that kind of opened it up all for me, was what did you need most as a child and not get? And, you know, that question, people might need to really sit with that. That might be a big question right now in this moment, but to just answer that honestly. And don't throw it away. Oh, they gave me so much. Everything was great. Don't throw the question away. What did you need most as a child and not get? Honor the question. Try to answer it. All right. Oh, I got everything I needed. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Pull yourself back in from that. Right? It's like, what could you have used more of? What do you wish if you had the magic wand could have shifted about this? This question is potent, right? It is such an important one to make space for. And so, yeah, I would encourage people to start with that question and see what comes up. And then there's this huge list of questions that I ask in the book when I'm starting to work with someone about exploring your family of origin and what it was like for you growing up and like really connecting to those relationships. And so all of those questions are going to be super helpful. But that one question Oh my gosh, it cracked me wide open. And it's the question that I continue to bring forward to folks who are like, okay, I'm kind of curious about this, but where is a great place for me to start? So that question. And then the second thing that I would say is look at the places where you are most reactive, right? Look at the things that create the most amount of reactivity around you. Is it certain people? What is it that they're doing? What is it that's usually happening? And just notice that your reactivity is there and it's going to be pointing you to a wound. I promise you that if you're willing to look at it and explore. And as we've both acknowledged, you know, doing this work is really tough. What advice do you have for people around like taking care of themselves? Because I do think, you know, sometimes you can be doing the work and feeling like you're making progress. And then maybe you feel like you've taken five steps forward and 10 steps back. And what's your advice for like just staying in it and taking care of yourself while you're in it? You know, as we've heard many times before, growth is not linear. It's a dance. It moves in lots of different directions. But to know that when you are intentional with this work, you are, you're moving. And movement is what we care about. But we can also take pauses, right? Yes. You are your own best gauge. And, you know, if something feels overwhelming, right, you get to take pauses, you get to put something down, you get to read this book and put it down for a mm-hmm. little bit if that's what's needed, right? It's like, that's so important. And calling in support, you know, your community, your therapist, your friends, you know, the people who are going to support you as you're moving through this work is really important. But pause, 
Take the time if you need it, need, recognize that it's not linear. Remind yourself of that. Don't give yourself a hard time if you find yourself back at the same thing over and over again. Part of this work is finding yourselves in the patterns. And sometimes growth is actually about exiting sooner rather than not entering at all. Right. So we have to look for growth in different ways, in ways that maybe don't seem outcome oriented, but are much more in the process and grace and compassion, grace and compassion over and over and over again with accountability and ownership. You cannot get anywhere good without grace and compassion for self and accountability and ownership with self. One without the other is not enough. You need both to intersect in this work. Yes, I love that. Vienna, this conversation has been so amazing. And I also just have to give a personal vouch for your book, which is just so impactful. And, you know, as I said earlier, I really like how you frame this work because it's really digestible. And I think it's a lot easier for people who might be a little bit afraid to approach you know, looking into their past and looking into their traumas. And I just know that it's going to be impactful for so many. So I truly, you know, I'm a huge fan of yours and your book is just incredible. But before I let you go, I just want to give you the opportunity to send one final message to our listeners. What is the main thing you want them to take away from our discussion here today? Well, thank you for the sweet message, Chrissy, and really right back at you. It's so wonderful to know you. And yeah, just such an honor to get to have this conversation with you. You know, I think the takeaway, the one thing, gosh, is that the life and the type of relationships that you want, right? The things that you really desire are on the other side of resolving that which is unresolved, truly. I've had the real honor of working now, gosh, it's like 25,000 hours of direct client work with individuals, couples, and families. And what I've had the honor of seeing real time is that things can change. And I think sometimes theoretically we know that, but it's important to be reminded that things can change, even if you've been doing the same thing for a really long time, for decades. You know, it's like change can happen on the other side of resolution. And I hope that people will take the path of resolving their origin wounds because they want to be. And your pain is not out to get you, it's out to be healed. And I am excited for people to have more intimacy with it in a way that is, you know, intentional and deliberate and directional. So that's how I'd sign off. Absolutely. Thank you again so much for being here today. I want to send a big thank you to Vienna today for coming on the show and talking about the importance of breaking learned patterns and healing our origin wounds. And remember, we're here to provide access to mental health resources and support to those who need it most. For more information, you can visit Maybelline.com slash Brave Together. And don't forget to make sure you're subscribed to I'm Fine, You. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review. Tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and this has been I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline, New York.